0: So we keep marching our way through this book along with God's people. But we've come to the point where some decisions have to be made. Because the first nine and a half chapters, chock full of action, miracles, all kinds of good stuff. Last week, the amazing miracle of the sun standing still. But now we're getting into the middle of the book. And if you've looked ahead or if you're familiar... At times, it's going to become a little repetitive. There's going to be a lot of detail, a lot of names, a lot of places, a lot of kings who were defeated, a lot of lands that were divided up among all the tribes, and so it's just tons of detail, y'all, like excruciating detail at times. Now, does that mean it's not useful? No, of course not. Paul said, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful, and so I certainly believe that. However, comma, that doesn't necessarily mean that all Scripture needs the same amount of time spent on it or maybe the same type of time spent on it, right? We're not going to necessarily go through these middle parts of Joshua in the same way with a fine-tooth comb that we might go over one of Paul's letters, all right. So it's time to move to, to use a different metaphor, some broader brush strokes, if you will. All right? And so uh, what I want to do this morning is finish chapter 10 and cover chapters 11 and 12. Can it be done? Yes, it can. Um, so it's going to be a bit of an unusual sermon because we're going to jump around a bit. And I want to draw your attention to four specific places in these three chapters. And we'll pick up little nuggets along the way. There's some good little nuggets to pick up. But there is a common thread that's woven throughout. It's been woven throughout all of Joshua, and it's definitely through these three chapters. And I think it's that common thread that's going to hopefully give all this some cohesiveness and help all this to make sense together. And here's the common thread somewhere. There it is. we're getting close. Uh, the common thread through all of this is God's special affection and provision and protection for his people, right? We've seen that already in Joshua. We're certainly going to continue to see that even in these middle chapters amidst all this detail. Here's the thing, Here, here's the forest among all the trees is God's special affection provision, and protection for his people. And if we're watching for it, when we see it, it's absolutely amazing. It's, it's stunning, really, if we can keep ourselves from getting too used to it, if we can keep ourselves from beginning to take it for granted. It's all over the place, and it is amazing what he continues to do for his people over and over and over again. So on the one hand, it's amazing, but then I will admit to you, on the other hand, it's also at times a little difficult to swallow. Because if God is blessing and pouring out mercy on his people, then the rest of the world's getting something else, right? They're getting justice instead of mercy. They're getting the judgment that they rightfully deserve instead of blessing. And so, admittedly, at times, that's hard to swallow, now, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of, of the first of the, of the three passages that you have there in your worship folder. And, and again, there's nothing magical about asking you to do this. It's just a, a good, helpful way for, for our, our bodies to remind our hearts and our minds of how we're approaching God's Word. That we're approaching it reverently, submissively, uh, recognizing the authority that it has in and over our lives. Now, this first passage is going to pick up from last week where the five kings, if you remember, had joined forces to try to fight against Gibeon and against God's people. And we know the outcome. Their armies were soundly defeated. These five kings were captured, and this is where this first passage picks up. So stand if you're able for the reading of this first section, Joshua 10, verses 20 through 26. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Mekedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so. And brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near, they put their feet on the necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them, put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. May God bless the preaching and the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, help us not to take lightly the severity of, of your judgment, uh, may it never lose its shock or its awe, and may it only help magnify grace and mercy that we've received through Christ. Help us this morning with these various passages. And in trying to get a sense of the whole of what's going on, help us to see that common thread of your faithfulness and your goodness to your people. Help us ultimately to see Christ. And most of all, Lord, change us by what we see. Change us through the power of your word and your Holy Spirit as it applies it to our hearts. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So it's pretty easy to see that common thread in this first section. God's action on behalf of his people just dominates the stage. Uh, We see, especially in in verse 21, very clearly his protection. They all returned safe. The enemies of God's people couldn't even wag their tongues couldn't, couldn't even say anything against God's people. So total and complete is the Lord's protection and His provision for them. And then we see very vividly in verse 24 this, this picture of domination, of, of dominating your enemies. You, you, you're, you're stepping on their necks. Your feet are on their necks. They're in absolute submission. You are absolutely dominating them because of the Lord's work, because of what the Lord has done. And so that is to be, verse 25, for them a great source of hope, because thus shall God do to all your enemies. The Lord will do it. The Lord, in His protection and provision for the people that He dearly loves, will eliminate all threats from His people. Y'all, that's, that's amazing. May we never become jaded to that. May that never become commonplace. But again, here we go. Mercy is wonderful if you're on that end of things, right? But God's justice is sobering to observe. The rest of chapter 10, 20 verses or so, uh, you can go back and read that sometime, you'll see that the lands of these five kings are captured. right? And so this is all across southern Canaan is where this is taking place. And then as we move into chapter 11... Essentially, we find that the second verse is same as the first, almost to a T. In, in northern Canaan, the kings are going to band together, and they're going to say, let's fight against God and his people. And it's going to come to a very similar end. So this is the second passage uh, that I've printed there for you in the, in the worship folder. It's uh, chapter 11, verses 4 through 8. Um, and they came out with all their troops... These are the kings in the north that are banding together. A great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain. Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merim and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misraphoth Maim and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining you know, the coalition here described here, this combined army, in verse 4, is no joke. This great horde in number, as many as the grains of sand on the shore, even still, be that as it may, verse 6, do not fear. Don't fear, the Lord will protect you. The Lord will provide for you. He will fight for you. He's the Lord who takes care of his people time after time after time. It'd be a good place to point out to you right here something that will will come in handy in just a few moments. Note that it's always the enemies who are striking first. It's always the enemies who are coming up with the plan. It's the enemies who are on the attack. It's always their idea to attack God's people. They are hostile to God and to His people. They hate them. They hate God and His people. And this will be important to consider in just a few moments when we begin to talk about God hardening their hearts. So just keep that in mind. They hate God's people. It's always their idea to strike first. Now, verse 6 has this troubling command. Some of you got your phones out and you want to call PETA and report this, right? Hamstringing the horses. Gosh, that just seems unnecessarily cruel. Is it? Is it necessary? Well, yes, It is necessary. On a couple of levels. First, and very practically, God wanted to ensure that nothing was left that could be of use in a second war. If some of these survivors went away and licked their wounds, regrouped, said, hey, we're going to try this again, God wanted nothing left at their disposal. But there's another way in which I think this is necessary. It was a a different type of protection for God's people. Lest God's people look at this great number of horses and chariots and begin to say, oh, what could we do with that? Ooh, how victorious we could be in battle if we just had their stuff. Because God knows the fickle human heart. He knows that trust would begin to shift from the Lord who fought for them to things. Things. To horses, to chariots, instead of in trusting in the name of the Lord their God, which I think is actually in a psalm somewhere, not trusting in horses and chariots, but trusting in the name of the Lord your God. And so this is a safeguard for God's people on, on a couple of fronts, as unpalatable as it is. Now, there's one other thing that I want to point your attention to in, in this middle section of verses. I told you there are lots of little nuggets along the way, We see here a great view of God's sovereignty on display, how he is in control, how everything is happening according to his plan, how he's the one doing it. And so, verse 6, we see that so clearly. Do not fear. Well, why should we not fear? Because I will give over all of them slain, right? He's going to do it. In His sovereign power, He's going to do it. Now, some folks would tell you that a high view, a high level of God's sovereignty is a dangerous thing because it will lead folks to inaction. It will lead folks to say, well, if, if God's going to do it, why bother? If He's in control and if He's going to do it anyway, Might as well just sit back and watch it happen. No. That's a misunderstanding of God's sovereignty. Because understanding God's sovereignty rightly, rather than leading to inaction, leads to bold, courageous action. And that's exactly what it does for Joshua and his people. Because right after verse 6, I will give over. I will do it. I'm in control. Comes verse 7. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly. We saw the same exact thing in chapter 10. A promise that God's going to do it leads us and enables us to take decisive action. I'm going to do it, God says. And so out of the gate they run, full steam ahead. I think evangelism is probably the biggest application for this and the biggest thing that people stumble over. Well, if if God's sovereign, if, if He's set His affection on a people, if He's sent His Son to die specifically for them, if He promises to effectively draw them and bring them to saving faith, then why bother with evangelism? Do we really need to be obedient to this great commission if he's going to do it anyway? And again, that's, that's an abuse. That's a misunderstanding of God's sovereignty. Why bother with evangelism? Precisely for the fact that we know that there are people out there that he's called. Precisely for the fact that we know there are people who will respond because God's enabled them to. Were that not the case, we'd have zero motivation. Anything that we tried evangelistically could fail miserably. Our efforts might be in vain were he not sovereign and in control. But because he is, because we know that he has a people that he's called into himself, a bold advance with the gospel is what is enabled through this. So the Lord promises this victory. He, of course, delivers on that promise. And so now let's jump down a few verses more in Joshua 11, verses 16 through 20. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev, "...and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Ereba, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Halleck, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal-Gad, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings, and struck them, and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings." There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing, oh boy, to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. In order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. First, the easy part of this, verse 18. Y'all, this took a long time. I bring this up because we've moved through these chapters in Joshua fairly quickly in a matter of weeks. And it's, you know, it's action-packed and it just seems to be happening pretty fast. One victory and one miracle after another. But Scripture makes a point here to tell us, Uh, This took a long time. Scholars think that it probably took between five and seven years to cover what we've covered so far in Joshua. In actual time. And that's a good reminder for us. Because the Lord is faithful to his promises. He is faithful. And in his time, he will be faithful. Faithful. But he just might not be in as big a hurry as we often are. I don't think this is more evident than in our sanctification. In our growth as Christians. In our being conformed to Christ. Because he has promised to do that. That is clearly his purpose from scripture. From Romans 8. He's called us to himself that he might conform us to Christ. That he might grow us up in him. That he might complete the work that he began. That's his promise. But his ways are often a lot more like a crock pot than a microwave. Right? Um, It takes a while for this old tough heart to be tenderized. And so that's important to consider from this section. Now there's also this other part from these verses. Could have just skipped right over it, but no, I can't leave well enough alone. I have to go looking for trouble. Verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle something similar that we've seen recently in our trinity together readings through exodus right the hardening of pharaoh's heart now, what do we make of that does that make god somehow the author of evil what is what is going on if god is hardening their hearts then then how can they be they be held responsible for what they do and so i i want to be hopefully helpful, and just share with you a few observations, a few um, convictions about what is and what is not going on here. Okay? Uh, the first of which, God is not putting an evil desire in their hearts. Right? That's why I mentioned in the last section, they already hate God. They already hate his people. They've been hating him for more than 400 years. While the Lord has been patient in bringing judgment and justice. So he's not planting anything there. They already are ready to fight. They want to kill God's people. So in hardening their hearts, he's not forcing them to do something they don't already want to do. If anything, he's just making it easier for them to do the very thing that they want to do. He's making it easier. He's making it more certain that the thing they want is what is the thing that they get. And I think Romans uh, 1, when Paul's talking about the unrighteous, uh, he mentions in, in 124, Um, eventually part of his judgment is to give the unrighteous over to the very thing they desired in the first place. That's part of God's judgment. It's not to force something on you that you don't want, but to give you the very thing that you most desire. That's what's going on here. He's giving them what they want in hardening their hearts. He's not making them do anything against their will. He's just paving the road, greasing the rails to the destination they were already wanting to go to. He's making sure they get what they want. Now, does does this remain difficult to swallow? Of course it does. So if, if you're struggling with this this morning... I don't take your struggle lightly. But it goes back to that common thread that I mentioned in the beginning, right? God's affection and protection and provision for his people. There is a people that God has set his affection on. And so there is a people then who do not have his affection set on them. Which first and foremost ought to humble us all deeply. Because scripture is quite clear that the difference between those two groups of people has nothing to do with us. It's all in His pleasure and prerogative and and the the mystery of His will which we do not understand. So maybe I actually just made the problem worse for some of you instead of making it better. And I'm just going to let it hang there and let you wrestle with that. The final section I want to draw your attention to is chapter 12, and you'll notice there's no part of chapter 12 printed here, because I'm not going to read any of it to you. In essence, it's just two lists. It's a list of the kings defeated by Moses, so we're going back in time to remember some stuff, and it's a list of all the kings defeated by Moses. Joshua. So there are two kings defeated by Moses back in the day, Sion and Og, and these were east of the Jordan before they crossed over. And so this was the very start of possessing the promised land, right? This is back in Numbers 21, if you wanted to go back and and read about it for yourself. Two kings by Moses, but 31 kings by Joshua. And so if you were to, to get real picky and count, you would see we haven't talked about 31 kings yet in Joshua. And so this list is more comprehensive than gets fleshed out in great detail in the chapters of Joshua. But here's a comprehensive list which just y'all you know, shows how thoroughly and completely God is being faithful to his promise. Right? 33 kings in all. One by one, these kings and their kingdoms are falling again and again. And again, now, to even read this chapter, to even read chapter 12, much less to preach an entire sermon on it, would just be um, a little tedious. Name after name after name. And doubtless, we have already experienced and will experience in our Trinity together readings. Some things where we're bogged down in the details and we're thinking, oh, gosh, uh, can I get through this and is it worth it? Is it worth it to get through here? Our eyes glaze over and we're thinking, oh my goodness, the details. But I read a very helpful and convicting reasoning for why even these tedious texts can be so important. It's in Dr. Davis's commentary that I've been using, but it's a guy named Ellison that he's quoting. Yeah, we got it up on the screen there. It would be unfair to suggest that the church is unwilling to thank God for all his many mercies. We're, we're willing to do that. But on the whole, the church is unwilling to indulge in detailed and specific things. If we were to train ourselves to recognize God's goodness act by act, And detail by detail, many of us would come to think more highly both of God and of the church. Much of our despondency comes from failing to see how much God has really achieved. Act by act, detail by detail. Is that our habit? I think I've mentioned before, this kind of reminds me of the the notebook that Shay keeps on our kitchen counter where she just notes down, (laughs) act by act and detail by detail, sometimes big, sometimes small and mundane things for which to be thankful. Hey, God did this. Aren't we so glad that a certain child slept through the night or that somebody got the job that we'd been praying for? You know, big or small, Act by act, detail by detail. God's goodness and faithfulness to his people. That's our common thread through all of this. Now finally, where is the gospel in all of this? In in what way do, do these middle parts of Joshua point us to Jesus? I want you to think back to that common thread. The affection, the provision, the protection of God for his people. And here's the other thing that I read this week that just summed this up so beautifully. And it was just, y'all, a note in a study Bible. All right? So don't think you've got to have a big expensive library with bunches of commentary. Sometimes just a study Bible is all it takes to really help sum things up for you. Let me read the first half of of this quote. The careful reader unavoidably observes the unfailing provision and faithfulness of God. So there's our common thread, right? We notice that. If you're careful at all, you'll notice the faithfulness of God in stark contrast to the fickle faith and wavering obedience of Israel. This is a tension that cannot exist forever given God's righteous holiness. Israel must either fulfill its covenant obligations or die. So the more we see this common thread on display, the the more examples we see of God's faithfulness, of his love, of his protection, of his provision, and y'all there's lots to see here. There's so much of that to see here. you begin to sense this imbalance, right? God is so faithful. He's so good. And his people are a wreck. And things are all out of whack. A faithful God and a faithless and disobedient people, y'all, and eventually something's going to have to give. And eventually it does. And so here's the second part of of that quote. In Christ, who is the true and final Israel, all this is fulfilled. In Christ's life, death, and resurrection, God's justice and holiness are fully upheld. A faithful Israelite fulfills the covenant obligations and guilt is punished with death. And God's people looking to God to fight on their behalf emerge freely and fully exonerated. Y'all, that's where the gospel is. All this faithfulness, all this affection and provision and protection, while it is freely received by God's people, it was not cheap. It was purchased at a great, great price. Price of which was... Paid in full by our faithful Savior. Let's pray. Oh God, would you show us the usefulness of even these middle chapters in Joshua? Would you show us your gospel grace even in the tedium and the monotony? The details that are hard to get through that we might not even understand at first why they're there or what they show us, would you, by the power of your Spirit, open up our eyes that we might see this common thread, indeed through all of Scripture, your affection, your protection, your provision for your dearly loved people. The people who, through Christ's work, is now a body, a church. Would you embolden us to courageous action because you're in control, because you're faithful and true and good. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name and for His sake, amen.